Hello, my name's Jonathan Self and I'm the founder of Honey's Real Dog Food. Honey's was delighted to provide the funding for this podcast. If you're looking for more information on raw feeding and canine nutrition, you can download a free copy of the best-selling guide, The Natural Feeding Handbook, from www.honeysrealdogfood.com. Hello and welcome back to the Dog Nutrition Podcast. I'm Penny Borum. And I'm Seb Masters. In our last episode, we looked at what might be some of the non-beneficial effects of a heavy carbohydrate diet for dogs. And we wondered about the correlation between diet and the canine obesity crisis. In this episode, we're going to look in more depth at the possible connections between dogs' health and their diet. And take a deeper look at... Kibble. These small brown biscuits are now the most popular form of dog food. And while there might be a picture of a big juicy steak printed on the bag, we are learning that a large part of their makeup is plant matter and carbohydrates. So how did we get to this point? To answer this question, we need to look at the very origins of the dog food industry, where different types of feeding emerge from, and one man called James Spratt. During a visit to the UK in the 1850s, James Spratt saw a group of dogs eating biscuits that had been discarded by sailors around the docks. These biscuits were known as hardtack and were used by sailors as a non-perishable source of sustenance for long spells at sea. James noticed how the hungry dogs were drawn to this hardtack and sensed an opportunity to make some money. He devised his own biscuit recipe, which included a little bit of meat meal, and sold it as a crunchy snack, not for seafarers, but for dogs. Spratt's biscuits signalled the start of the dog food industry, and by the 1920s, another form of feeding had emerged, and this time, it came in a tin. Capitalising on the low price of horse meat as a result of World War I, companies selling tin dog food quickly began to dominate the market. This was until another world war forced dog food to evolve once again, leading to the first commercial kibble being produced in 1956 using a new process called extrusion. Connor Brady explains. It was after the war. um, We were running out of tin and we totally ran out of horses. And it was in the early 50s and they said, right, we need, what are we going to feed the dogs here? And extrusion processing had just been invented which is the uh, very simple process of mixing all your stuff up and then forth cooking it and forcing it through a tiny little hole and chopping it into little balls so you can make these little tiny round crackers and then you dry out the crackers with more heat so it's twice heat cooked or maybe three times. So they said, right, well, look, here's a product we can make. We've got carbohydrates, that's no problem. We don't really need to add in any meat because pet owners don't know and we'll just say it contains a bit of meat and they'll put in a cow's toenail in it. And uh, so they made this food and they put a picture of a dog in the front of it and um, that was it in 1950s. And the ingredients and the recipe has not changed. It's apparently as good as it can be from the 1950s. So um, that was what they came in. It was a necessity after the war to find something a bit more useful. But they were fed horse almost uh, obligatory up until up until the 40s and 50s. And then suddenly the dogs became vegetarians. Um, not for any other reason, but that it was a highly profitable thing to do. And it hasn't changed. And while the science has moved on, that particular cell hasn't changed. And that's still the lessons coming down. So... That's when it began, yeah. It's still the same formula, unbelievably. Connor Brady brings up an important point about profit and how it influences methods of production, sometimes at the expense of what is nutritionally best. 
The extrusion process, which Connor has just told us about, involves cooking food under extreme heat. This can kill off some dangerous bacteria and pathogens, but it also significantly makes the kibble dry and portable, meaning bags of it can be shipped all over the world. Vet Nick Thompson talks about the processing of kibble in more detail. I'm quoting from a lovely book by Amy Marshall. Most of the ingredients in the average bag of kibble are processed six or seven times before the bag hits store shelves. Don't believe me? Let's count together. Number one, rendering. Raw animal material or protein is processed at least once, possibly twice. It's cooked at temperatures hovering around 280 degrees, often for hours at a time. Number two, hammer mill. Dry ingredients, including meat and bone meal, are ground into flour-like powder. Animals, meat and bone have been heated, melted and processed so intensely they are now in the form of a flour. 3. Preconditioning. Hot water and pressurised steam cook the ingredients. Number 4. Extruder. The tube walls reaching extremely high temperatures cooks the ingredients as they're pushed through a long steel cylinder through the other end and are then chopped as they uh, go through the die in order to produce certain shapes. After kibble is sliced from the die, it goes into a heated oven to dry and harden. After spraying with other liquids and powders, including fats, the kibble goes back into the heated oven for the final phase of drying and hardening. There you go. Six. So they're not cooked, these things. They are super cooked six times. So the production of kibble involves what Nick calls supercooking. But what about those tinned foods we mentioned earlier? The ones that were invented back in the 1920s but are still sold today. How are they produced? Dr Brendan Clark is the head veterinary surgeon at Towerwood Vets in Leeds. He explains what happens to canned dog food before it reaches our shelves. You put it in the can, you heat it through to effectively cook it within that so that it then is preserved by that process and that is ultra high protest because heat is well over 120 degrees so yeah i do lump those sachets those cans in with that ultra high processed food so the two most popular forms of feeding kibble and canned are both ultra processed that means they've been heavily manipulated and adapted away from their natural form But what are the consequences of consuming such ultra-high processed food? Nick Thompson highlights some research about its effects on humans. Ultra-processed food is a recognised group of foods. It's called the NOVA classification. And there's a study uh, on the NHS website. You can can go and see it now. It's from a a French group and they they studied the effect of eating ultra-processed food on thousands and thousands of of, of French people over uh, many years. And they were able to correlate that for every 10% increase in ultra-processed food in the diet, that was correlated with a 12% increase in the chance of getting cancer. And in women, an 11% increase in, in older women uh, of getting breast cancer, and that is that is just a ten percent increase in 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 eating processed food. But what what we are doing, what what the what the uh, big pharmaceutical giants, they want us to feed one hundred percent kibble. This is what they advocate. This is what they put on their websites. 
And they want you to feed that full life. A puppy food, and then a junior food, and then an adult food, and then a senior food. So you're on kibble for every single one of those life stages. And I think that that's got a lot to do with why we're seeing so much cancer in our dogs. Nick outlines a pretty clear path towards one of the biggest threats to domestic dogs, cancer. He shows us how he sees ultra-processed foods as increasing our chance of getting cancer and is suggesting that the way dogs often eat kibble and only kibble is a big problem. Dogs are more likely to suffer cancer than any other species. As vet Nick Thompson was just saying, we do really need to think about whether the extreme processing of kibble might be contributing to this high rate of cancer. In the last episode, Dr Connor Brady explained that high sugar diets spike insulin. Here he explains more about the link between carbohydrates, sugar, insulin and cancer. Did you know, and I don't use these figures lightly, a dog is 10 times more likely to suffer cancer than a human. And a human is the second most likely animal to get cancer on the planet. And dogs are 10 times more likely to get cancer. Huge, huge figures. Uh, So why is that? It's because tumours and nasty cells are insulin junkies. Insulin is a hormone. It's an anabolic hormone. It's a growth hormone. So if you are a nasty little tumour and you want to get to growing, you cover yourself in receptors for insulin. So it's like little tiny trumpets all around and waiting for insulin. And so what spikes insulin? High sugar diets. So we know this. In fact, that's how we find cancer in the body. It's called a PET scan. And you radioactive tag a, I don't know, cola or orange drink and uh, you drink it and then the scientists get to track where all the sugar goes, actually where all the insulin goes. And the tumours light up like Christmas trees. Lovely. Thanks for the sugar meal. This is the this is the cause of uh, a lot of cancer in humans. We've got, we they used to think that it's all about gene therapy. It's a great way to raise money. You know, it's all about your genes. It's not. Less than 10% of cancers, now probably less than 5% of cancers are based on your genes. It's now the epigenetics. What flicks your genes on and off? And high sugar, terrible diets has got to be the number one factor. It's an environmental factor that causes so many cancers you can be prone to breast cancer but if you eat a high sugar diet you're going to get breast cancer so that's the same as you can be prone to lung cancer but if you smoke you're going to really be prone to lung cancer if you don't smoke it might kick in it makes perfect sense so we know high sugar diets spike cancers in humans if we get rid of the sugar it's it's how you starve the tumor of what it needs to grow doesn't mean it'll go away but if you go into ketosis and eat protein and fat then there's no insulin being produced, not as much, and uh, so the the tumour doesn't grow as fast. We've outlined some of the key health issues which are unfortunately prevalent in dogs today. And what we need now is more direct research into how nutrition is playing its part in this. This is where Dr. Anna Bjorkman comes in. She's a veterinarian and the senior clinical instructor at the University of Helsinki in Finland. She also founded a research group at the university called Dog Risk. One of the first things her research group initiated was something they called the Dog Risk Questionnaire. This was an online survey which asked owners about their dog's diet, environment, activity levels and health. They actually chose to start with a survey as it was proving hard to find the funds they needed for their research. However, they then found their survey showed a strong correlation between the dogs eating raw and a decreased likelihood of developing certain diseases. 
So far, the survey has been completed by over 12,000 people. First, we didn't have really any money to do anything. So we started with the big dog risk questionnaire and started analysing the first uh, data. It was just evident that if you were looking at the dry food contra the raw food, in nearly any of these allergies and atopies and ear infections and eye infections and anal gland infections and uh, gum infections and tartar, any type of intestinal infections. And you could see that there was much less dogs having these diseases if they had been fed on raw. And uh, so that, of course, uh, triggered us to also do uh, diet inventions. And uh, and actually, the thing that we could see with the diet invention, where we were giving dry or raw food to very good type of foods for uh, uh, sensitive skin disorders, a dry food, and then also a raw food that was just... Uh, uh, made with three different animal protein sources, uh, we could see that the ones that were eating the, the raw food, we could see a gene expression change. We could see uh, oxidative stress markers change. We could see uh, also clinical markers, but but the clinical markers that was, we used validated scores like the CADESI-4, which is a kind of an index for for uh, symptoms of, of allergy or atopy. And then we were also using the scratching visual analog scale score. And on both of these, we could see that they were getting better with the raw, but in the time frame between four and five months that we gave it, we didn't get a statistical difference. And that again, took us back to looking at the epidemiology data to see that do you have to eat it from the start, from when you're a baby dog, uh, to be able to to kind of of uh, not get atopy or a- allergy at at an older age, and there we could see uh, that dog baby dogs like small puppies, and actually their mothers, if both the mother was eating it when she was pregnant, when she was lactating, and when if the babies were eating it before they were about eight weeks old, then they had a much bigger chance of not getting atopy and allergy, for example. So we see that it's it's not only a thing that you can change totally if you change your diet, but you should really try to get a puppy that has been raised by a mother that has been eating raw. And that's where we're, we are at the moment, I would say, more or less. Certainly, there is a massive increase in raw feeding. Some are calling this the raw revolution, or rawvolution for short. Vet Connor O'Halloran says studies are showing this change. So there's been a number of studies looking at how much raw feeding practices go on. Some of the studies have been done in the UK and Europe, but also in America, North America specifically, and and Australia as well. There's quite solid and consistent data now that show that the practice of raw feeding is increasing in pet ownership generally. The numbers vary, but it's roughly about fourfold in the last five or six years, depending on the study that you look at and 
the demographics and how they did the study and bits and pieces like that. But as a general kind of rule of rule of thumb, it's probably about four times as common as it was five years ago. And it's still quite low prevalence. I mean, we're probably still talking about 10% or less of, of owners feeding a completely raw food. But we're also seeing an increase in the number of people who are using raw food as a complementary food. So they're mixing cooked you know, commercial kibble food and topping it up with raw mints or you know, those kind of aspects. So there was a study from the Netherlands that showed that 60% of dog owners were feeding some raw food. When they were asked the question, do you feed your dog raw food? Only 10% of them said yes, because people interpret that as meaning completely only gets raw food. And then when they said, what kind of treats do you feed the dog and asked more questions, turns out that what we would define as people feeding raw meat to their dogs was actually much higher. So it may even be higher than what we what we think. And that's something that we've got to deal with as vets, because it's not a trend that's slowing down and it's not a trend that's going to go away. And it's not something that we can just avoid. But without the backing of any major dog food brands, what's exactly driving this significant uptake in raw feeding? Vet Nick Thompson believes it's to do with the observable changes that people see in their dogs once they switch to raw feeding. He says that these can be both considerable and quick. The effects of changing to a raw food are seen very quickly. In most dogs, two weeks. I have did have a, a dog who had never had a a, a, a solid stool in her entire life. She was a five-year-old old, old English sheepdog called Emma, and within two days she was producing the most perfect poos when she went onto a raw food diet. So it can be super, super quick, but usually it's within about two weeks. Uh, I think this quick and really obvious transformation. This is what has caused the raw food revolution. People say, "Well, I'll give it a go. It seems quite sensible." Um, it's not too messy because the company can send me the, the product. I'll just defrost it and feed it to the dog. Uh, I don't think my dog really likes kibble, so I'll just give it a go. And the, what keeps them, what, what, what wows them and keeps them feeding raw food is that they see almost instant results. Within two weeks, you're going to see improved teeth. You're going to see, uh, if the ears were a bit waxy and a bit smelly, those can improve beautifully, uh, less noisy digestion, less wind, better quality stools. The only way you can produce a good quality stool is if you've got, you know, a, a, a reasonable microbiome and your gut is functioning well. If the dog has got problems with anal glands, those can be much improved by using the raw food diet. Uh, coat, the bloom on the coat, the shine on the coat is will go from a kind of a slightly starey shine, kind of an artificial shine from the fats that we find in kibbles or to a, a much deeper and um, kind of coat that you want to stroke. Yeah, So that's a, a wonderful thing. It's true that much of the evidence of the benefit of raw feeding is still anecdotal. This is why people like Dr Anna Bjorkman and her team at Dog Risk who are doing comparative studies about dogs' diets are so important. Vet and research scientist Connor O'Halloran says there is evidence that gut microbiome health appears better in dogs and cats fed raw, but we still haven't got the full data. So there are 
benefits to raw feeding, for example, where people have reported higher frequency of potential markers of health. So, for example, if you look at the microbiota of cats and dogs that are fed raw food compared to just kibble, cooked kibble diets, then the raw-fed animals have a naturally wider diversity of normal gut bacteria than one that's on a cooked diet. So the question then is actually, that sounds like it's probably a good thing because it means you've got a kind of more complex microbiome than you would otherwise. And we know that microbiome health is really important for lots of other health-related outcomes. So it sounds like that would be a good thing to do. But what we haven't yet got is the the data and the long-term studies to say, well, actually, does that then actually correlate to longer life or better health and, and whatever outcome it is that you're going to measure? So we've got to the point now where I think we can we can say things like that. So there was a study, for example, that showed that dogs that were fed on raw food had lower activation levels of their white blood cells at rest. Just if you blood sample a dog that's chilling and is not trying to fight an infection, its immune system is in is not stimulated in a way, like it hasn't just been vaccinated, for example, then actually the immune systems seem to be less active in dogs fed raw food compared to fed commercial food. But the question is, is that then helpful? So your cells might be active, but are they producing inflammatory markers? And what they weren't able to show is that the active cells or cells that appeared to be more active in dogs that are fed kibble were actually then producing an inflammatory response because there was then this theory that potentially the raw food was anti-inflammatory and was acting to lower inflammation in dogs. And that would be really helpful because instead of giving anti-inflammatory drugs to dogs to lower inflammation in different disease processes could you adjust their diet to naturally reduce inflammation but they were healthy dogs so we don't know what the state of those cells is going to be in an active disease process and we don't know if changing them actually reduces that inflammatory process and we don't know that although they appeared to be less active, were they actually less active? So there's still a lot of work to do to actually get to the point where we can start to maybe tweak diets in a helpful way. So I think at the moment we are limited to saying it might help logically, so give it a try and see, but we don't really have any studies yet that, and it's going to be a while before we do, that say actually, yeah, it's, it's definitely helpful. Connor outlines the importance of robust and clear scientific studies. However, it sounds like raw feeding is producing some interesting results that we shouldn't ignore. We'll look at some of these and more of Anna Bjorkman's research in the next episode. We will also hear from one particular vet practice who believes so passionately in the benefits of raw feeding that they have introduced an innovative approach to encourage it. Plus, we'll be exploring the perceived risk to dogs and humans of the bacteria present in raw food. All this and more in our next episode. And we haven't forgotten Darcy the Labrador, who is still enjoying his dinner. I'm Penny Boren. And I'm Seb Masters. Please do join us next time for the Dog Nutrition Podcast. If you're looking for more information on raw feeding and canine nutrition, you can download a free copy of the best-selling guide, The Natural Feeding Handbook, from www.honeysrealdogfood.com.